you are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogues. Each week, we design new decks for tournament play, and then we put our creations to the test so we can share our findings on the air. What worked? What didn't? And what can we improve for the following weeks? Welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Down Online, joined today by Emmy Sagasti. You know him as Mord to Light. Emmy, welcome. Hey, yo. Thanks, Dan. How is it going, everybody? Joining you once again to continue our beautiful Secret Lair Through the Ages Faithless Brewing Edition. Yeah, I mean, the 30th anniversary celebrations are in full swing. Magic 30 Las Vegas just happened. Perhaps some people are coming out of their drunken revelry as we speak. But we don't know all that. We're time travelers, in a way. <laughs> we're like you're 72 probably... hours in the past. Exactly. You're probably, like, knee-deep in the Brothers War spoilers that have been coming out all weekend, but we are not. We'll cover all those next time. <laughs> By the next Friday, we promise we're gonna have everything covered. And when is Brothers War releasing? Well, it's... Coming out later digitally, so for paper players, they'll get to go to the pre-release, unspoiled by what the MTGO grinders think is good or not. So, 11 is the pre-release, 15 is Arena and MTGO, and 18th is official tabletop release. So, we'll have some time to digest these cards, think about them before we actually play with them. And that also gives us some time to perform a little Magic 30 celebration of our own. We talked about last time that Mord and I have prepared Mord and I have prepared our own Magic 30 secret layer, our own little countdown, choosing a card from every year that speaks to us as brewers. Exactly. And we were last last seen on 1998, as I discussed, fecundity, and now we're going to the year Mord was born, 1999. Yes, you're just a baby. <laughs> oh my god. 1999. Well, man, this was a year. What sets came out in 1999? Urza's Legacy. It's a lot of sets. Urza's Legacy, Urza's Destiny, Mercadian Masks, and 6th Edition, also known as Classic. 6th Edition is when the rules changed. Uh, the stack was introduced back then, which was a, a huge improvement on whatever nonsense was going on before that. And Portal 3 Kingdoms also came out in 1999. Interesting little tidbit. So, what was your card of choice for this beautiful year? Yeah, so I chose Phyrexian Negator. Shout out to our good friend, Soren Wellman, aka First Turn Negator. I think when he was on with you, he explained his love for casting a First Turn Phyrexian Negator. It's two and a black. Creature Horror. I guess now Creature Phyrexian Horror. 5-5 five, five, Trample. So three mana, 5-5 five, five, Trample. Wow. Pretty cool creature. It also has a second line of text. Whenever Phyrexian Negator is dealt damage, you sacrifice a permanent for each one damage dealt to it. <laughs> so, amazing creature, amazing creature. A 5-5 five, five trample that's undercosted, and in exchange, you lose everything. You lose everything if it takes any damage. Lightning bolts on your Phyrexian Negator, and you just pack it in. You're and toast. And you just hope you have three lands so you don't lose your Negator, as well as all your lands. 
So you really actually want to do this on turn one. I mean, first turn negator, that's exactly what it's all about. It's, this card would not see any play at all if not for the fact that Dark Ritual was legal forever. Like, they just kept reprinting Dark Ritual. I have no idea why. Why did I pick this card? Well, it's sweet for starters. It looks awesome. It saw a lot of play. Like It, it occupied a large part of the mindshare of tournament players back then. We were afraid of this card. It seems, in retrospect, so easy to defeat a Phyrexian Negator, but we were terrified of this card. And it led to this idea of suicide black, right? The idea of a black deck that was so reckless in throwing away its own resources just to get the opponent dead. You would even play cards like Hatred, which lets you pay your own life just to pump up your own creatures. This was the, the, the ethos around this, uh, this black deck, and Phyrexian Negator is the emblematic face creature of the for deck. it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, alongside amazing, amazing staples like Carnophage or Sarcomancy, better known as the mono-black shackle pups. Exactly. Like, two twos with drawbacks. <laughs> this is what magic was like back then. I mean, it's so strange. The spells were so broken for so many years, and the creatures were so bad. And that's also why I love Phyrexian Negator. Like, compared to Phyrexian Obliterator, which makes the opponent sacrifice, like, it's just shocking how much the game has changed in its attitude towards what a creature should be. I mean, the face of the deck, I don't know if it was Phyrexian Negator or suddenly it was another spell, Hatred. Yeah, Hatred actually won the game, but for style points, for coolness, you gotta go with a Negator. So that's my pick from 1999. Wait, does this deck play Carvex Spite? <laughs> this deck plays freaking Carvex Spite? What is Carvex Spite? You don't, you know what it is? Trying to think of it. Three mana is that uh, exile two creatures? No, wars, 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 wars. Three, man, three black mana instant. The effect is target player loses five life. The cost is paying three black mana, sacrifice all permanents, and discard your hand. That's this had your hand sacrifice all permanents, not all non land, no, no, all permanents, did fire damage. That's amazing. This is David Price, fourth place Grand Prix Seattle to, in the year 2000. Okay. Well, speaking of the year 2000, that is the next year. It is an even year, which means it's your pick, Mord. So for the next even year, 2000, Tiny Mord decided to pick a card that I think everybody knows about. I'm not sure if this was the correct choice, but I went for fact or fiction. The alternative was, of course, Lin Sibi, which is, I think, the face of the game for all those years. The more white the menace. But Wizards have chosen that, and I didn't want to be a copycat. <laughs> so the sets you were choosing from were Nemesis, Prophecy, and Invasion. I mean, it's the fourth when the game was such a staple of the game for so many years. It's sad to see the cards be modern legal and unplayable. This was reprinted in Modern Horizons, is that right? The first Modern Horizons? And we saw a little bit of play, like when Wilderness Reclamation and Uro were both legal at the same time, for example. For a few hours, yeah. It's, it's a little sad that like Memory Deluge became a better card than Factor Fiction. I mean, Shadow Prophecy, you and I talked about how we think that's actually a better card than Factor Fiction. But all that aside, I mean, we're not comparing Factor Fiction against the full 30 years of, of card pool. It's more like, what did this card represent in its time? And what a card this was. Like, it was 
terrifying to play against. It has a mini game involved where you're just going to screw it up, right? You don't know what the opponent has in their hands, so you can't quite value the cards properly. And then whatever you pick, like they still get some in their hand and some in their graveyard. That fuels the Psychotog. So what an impressive card this is. This is a great pick. Yeah, I think it was like the staple of fashion for so long. It deserves at least a bit of love. If not, I was going to go for my loving Spore Frog. Who doesn't love the frog? One of the top cards from Prophecy, Spore Frog. <laughs> I used to collect that because I thought it was so cute. I had it's a foil so Spore cute. Frog. The shampy eyes. And then many years later, it turned out that the foil Spore Frog from Prophecy was very expensive because Marin of Clan Neltoth or something is a popular commander. Who, who really knows why? But yeah, I, I was able to sell that Spore Frog for a good chunk. So thank you, Marin players, for that. Marin players showing the love for Spore Frog that it deserves. So, with that being said, we are going to 2001. What do we have in store, then? 2001, we had Plane Shift, Apocalypse, and Odyssey. So this cycle here is, right, the, the fall set introduces the, the new theme, but the winter and spring sets were following up on the previous fall set. So Invasion, Plane Shift, Apocalypse, these were all multicolor sets. They were really Magic's first reckoning with like what a proper multicolor set should be. The idea of gold cards was from Legends, but Legends was a mess, right? They had no idea of like what it meant to be a gold card. Invasion, they actually sat down and kind of like mapped out, okay, how do the allied colors interact? If a card is gold, what is actually drawn from each color? And they did the same thing in Plane Shift. And then Apocalypse, they did the same thing for enemy colors. So we're finally seeing like enemy pain lands and like, you know, black green cards that combine elements of black and green in, in a real way. So I felt like I had to pick something from this block. And the card that speaks to me the most is actually a card that sees no play whatsoever. It never has, but it's it's just like such a sweet card. It's called Wild Research. Wild Research. Have you ever seen this card, Mord? I had seen it mostly because of the art, but it's so weird. It's two and a red enchantment. I mean, this is on my list of cards that if I ever form like a spin-off magic podcast where I just rant about you know, ancient cards. It would be called Wild Research if only more people knew about this card. Because I, I love this. I lo- this is my favorite part of Magic, is just digging into the theory, digging into <laughs> into the archives. Why is Napoleon on the back of the art? Oh my god, is that actually Napoleon? I don't know, it looks pretty like it. I feel like that's a character from, like, the Saga arc or something. I, like, I'm not 100% sure what's depicted here. I, but... I, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is this. This is Farin, before casting Obliterate. Uh, is it the guy who's in Gainsay? I, I recognize his costume. In what? Yeah, he's one of those guys. Commodore or something like that. Commodore McDuff. <laughs> I'm trying to think of his name. He's a random side character from the Urza Mishra plotline. Maybe he'll actually yeah, be in yeah. the Brothers War. The Commodore Guff. Commodore Guff. <laughs> well, anyway, so that's the artwork. What does the card do? Well, it's an enchantment for three mana. A red enchantment, but its activated abilities are white and blue. So the white ability says, one in a white, search your library for an enchantment card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle, then discard a card at random from your hand. So what did you do? You tutored up any enchantment, you discarded a card at random, so maybe you got the card you wanted, maybe you didn't, maybe you just put it in your graveyard. The exact same effect in blue for one in a blue. Search your library for an instant card, reveal it, put it in your hand, then shuffle, then discard a card at random. So 
it's actually pretty sweet. Like this is one of the design spaces that they haven't used that much. Like, so you, you mentioned the hard gamble, right? That that one's a more playable version of this. Yeah. So wait, Boulevard is the planeswalker on the back, and Commodore Gaff is changing history because he knows how Ferrix can swim. That's what's happening. Oh, Commodore Guff is the one who's doing the wild research? Commodore Guff is doing the research and he's trying to change history because he has already read how Phyrexia wins the battle because he's a planeswalker that lives in a library hidden from anywhere and just reads. Oh my god. And who is the guy in the background? Um, the other planeswalker, which is Bo Levar. Oh, Bo Levar. Bo Levar okay. gave his life protecting a merfolk colony after convincing Guff to change the destiny of Phyrexia. So what I like about this is that it uses the gamble mechanic. It lets you do it as many times as you want. It lets you tutor for enchantments. Exactly. (laughs) Put it all on seven. (laughs) Let it ride. (laughs) You can get enchantments, you can get instants, you can get whatever you want. And you just keep doing it. Even if you're empty-handed, you can kind of tutor cards directly into your graveyard. It's a super sweet effect. I would love to see them explore something like this a little bit, you know, a little bit more on the modern power level. Or, sorry, with a little more modern design sensibilities, I should say. But I still think Wild Research is actually a pretty fun card if you're just playing casual or commander. Yeah, but I can only picture myself, like, activating this five times and every single time discarding the card I look for with six lands in hand and crying. But now you have a stacked graveyard, right? The graveyard is a resource. And you took up half the time shuffling. And then I thought for an instant to use my graveyard and discard that. Well, you can get a flashback card. I mean, it's it's very forward compatible with all kinds of stuff. Mm. Anyway, Wild Research. Look it up, brew with it, and yeah. If you come up with anything sweet, please share it with me. I would love to see this card, you know, get some more love. Get some love with the beautiful Wild Research. So, we keep going to 2002 where we have Torment, Judgment, and Onslaught. And I think my choice was the obvious one. Polluted Delta? No, no, it wasn't Polluted Delta. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what was the obvious one? Astral Slide. Oh, okay. Polluted Delta. Good choice, though. I mean, yeah, Polluted Delta is the card that ruined magic, but Astral Slide yeah, yeah, could exactly. have saved magic. Who doesn't love Astral Slide? Astral was, uh, Slide was such an odd deck. Played to exactly everything I like about magic, and I always hope Astral Drift was a playable card, and suddenly it never was. Those two in a white enchantment, whenever a player cycles a card, you may exile a target creature, then return it to its owner's control at end of turn. Exactly. Very parasitic, right? You have to just play the cycling deck to make this work, and you need to eat, have ETB creatures. Yeah, it was your whole cycle. deck had to play around Astral's Light for it to be good. And surprisingly enough, it was good enough. There was another card called Lightning Rift, so you had two enchantments, Rule of Eight, to pay you off for all these cyclers. And yeah, I mean, you just had to have a good knowledge of timing. Damage went on the stack back then, so you could, you know, put your creature into combat, put damage on the stack, cycle something to blink it out with a slide. So Lightning Rift is, you. whenever you cycle, you can pay one mana and it chucks anything. And there's the pre-modern deck, like in pre-modern, which is a format I absolutely hate, I think Astral Lights is still a deck. Oh, interesting. You have so many cyclers. <laughs> Why do you hate pre-modern? I hate, I, I hate solved formats. And whenever somebody tell me, tells me it's not solved, I tell them it's not solved because nobody cares about it. Because that's the only way a closed format is not solved. Like, there's no, no alternative. So do you know what the best deck is? Do you have any hunches? 
No, no, I haven't played any. I, I played it once, and it was like playing slow popper. <laughs> Which, if you have ever played popper, you know that's an insult to magic itself. But yeah, it's a format based on nostalgia, so clearly I'm not the target audience. Fair, fair. Well, my pick for 2003, the next year, also comes from Onslaught Block, and it actually interacts with Astral Slide in an interesting way. Now, I'm picking a card here that's not really for Constructed. This is more of a limited card, but what I like about it is that it, it really speaks to what a strange year Onslaught Block was. So the main theme of Onslaught was the morph mechanic. Like a shocking design, right? You could take any card with morph, put it into play face down. You had to pay three mana. So you're paying three mana to get like a, a mystery creature. And then your opponent on their turn is paying three mana to get a mystery creature. You get all these face down creatures and you're, you just have no idea what's going on. There's bluffing involved and then you flip them up or you don't. It was a heavily engineered play pattern to the extent that like the card shock was also an onslaught and it almost like broke the game anytime somebody shocked your morph creature. It was just like too powerful. <laughs> It's such a huge tempo setback. So within this like carefully sculpted environment of like everyone's gonna play morph creatures, this is this is how we're gonna do it for a whole year. What can you do to make morph interesting? Well, one of the things you can do is you can change up the morph condition, right? You can you can really win a big blowout by morphing when they're not expecting you to morph. If they were tapped out, for example, right? So some cards in Scourge and Legions allow you to morph when you were tapped out. And the card that I'm picking here to, to represent this is Zombie Cutthroat. It's a 3-4 zombie with morph. So what you do is you play it as a 2-2 two, two for 3. You morph it whenever it's most advantageous. And you do that by paying 5 life. So you can, you can be tapped out, right? Turn 3, you, you morph your Zombie Cutthroat. They attack with their morph. You block. Maybe they try to unmorph to something bigger. But like, surprise, even though you're tapped out, you've morphed into you know a 3-4 Zombie Cutthroat. How do they pick five life? Well, they really had to calculate, you know, how much life is fair given this huge temple blowout, potentially card advantage. And it ended up being actually like a pretty sweet spot. Like for a while, people would always lose the zombie cutthroat, but then we learned to expect it. And then when you learn to expect it, like it actually is like a little mini game around it. And then it's actually not such a big deal. At the same time, you know, the zombie cutthroat costs five if you just want to cast it normally without paying five life. And that also leaned into the theme of Scourge, which was based on like highest CMC in play matters. So like cards like Rush of Knowledge would check what's your highest CMC and you get some effect based on whatever that was. So they really actually like used every part of the buffalo here on the card like Zombie Cutthroat. And it was just like a card that was a, a curated experience that actually really worked, in my opinion. I mean, the fact that shocks are seeing play or easy ways to kill morph and you're able to always keep your opponent on their knees because they're not sure if they're actually going to get the two for one or that the tempo play is devastating. Like, even if you don't have the cutthroat, the fact you might have the cutthroat changes everything. Exactly, exactly. All right, that's 2003. What do we have for 2004? As we keep moving forward, we reach 2004 with Darksteel, Fifth Dawn, and Champions of Kamigawa. We have two of the strongest sets in Magic and one of the weakest. However, I'm surprised. When I made my choice, I had assumed Wizards would have made the same. I'm not gonna lie. Because I think this is one of the insignia cards in Magic. Like, it's a card I just can't look and say, wow, this is what Magic is different from other games, and that's gifts and given. Nice choice. So, a card with a history, 
I think anybody fast who likes seeing old gameplay footage has seen the game where I can't remember the name, but a extremely no no pro player goes for the first time in a tournament setting, is gives and giving for only two cards in order to mill them both. Three and a blue instant, search your library for four cards with different names, reveal them, target opponent chooses two of those cards, the those that the opponents choose go to the graveyard. The two that your opponent did not choose go to your hand, then you shuffle. So it sounds like you're advocating for an illegal play. Why? <laughs> I have to search for four cards. How did, how did you only choose two? With different names. Can you prove my deck is not 56 planes? The moment so, there is a conditional, it becomes hidden information. And in that specific moment, you just cannot force me into actually complying with all the parts. I wonder who was the first person who realized this. Like the rules loophole that lets you just So when he did it, cards. the commentators went insane. They had never seen it. So it was actually around that time. It was... Uh, what's the name of the guy? He's like super known. There's a whole video by Rhystic Studies who I just love. Rhystic Studies makes amazing videos. It's called Fails to Find the Video. Oh, interesting. I haven't seen that one. It's talking mostly about this exact scenario. And uh, what's the name? Frank Karsten's Greater Gifts. So Frank Karsten got to the final playing a deck that was called Greater Gifts that played Greater Good, the White Dragon from Kamigawa, and Gifts and Given. Oh, Yosai the Morningstar. <laughs> so he used greater cool to draw a bunch of cards, tap his opponent, connect, and just kept looping like that. In the winning move, in the semifinals, he wins by using gifts and given to to, to draw Yosai into the graveyard and winning the game. So what was the value of putting Yosai in the graveyard? Was he it had, uh, right, He was playing Gorya a bunch of rights? animation spells. Or was it like Footsteps of the Gorya? I think it was Footsteps of the Gorya because he swings for lethal. So the versatility in Gifts and Given, a card that has gone from being played back in 2004 to Modern Storm, and still a card that every time I look at it, I want to try and break it, because... I, and, the, and the look for two cards has seen some play back in a few years ago. Asorius Throne was playing this as a way to get, like, Elish Norn plus Amburial Rites. And you get just those. Yes, interesting. Amburial Rites was not printed until a couple years later, so... The fact that this field of fine play still existed even before that, I mean, that's so cool. Yeah, he didn't have a way to discard it on the moment, and no way to make sure he got two dragons, so it was like, fail to find. Commentators go crazy, everybody goes crazy, and he just wins the game on that turn. Amazing stuff. Great choice. But yeah, Frank Arsten from... This was the 2005 World Championship. So, like, super close to this. The other honorable mentions, of course, are the broken cards such as Ravasher, Artifact Lines, Chite, and more favorite, Eternal Witness. Because who doesn't love Witness? And with that, we go straight to 2005, where we got the second half of Kamigawa. Betrayers of Kamigawa, Saviors of Kamigawa, Ravnica City of Guilds, and 9th Edition. Betrayers and Saviors did not have much in them, I, I gotta tell you, but Ravnica... Ravnica was an amazing set, right? I mean, I talked about last time how in Invasion, Planeshift Apocalypse was such an important exploration of multicolor. Ravnica is where they finally nailed it, right? They, they finally figured out that it's not just mechanically how does each color pair work, but also, like, can you build a whole flavorful identity around color pairs? And they've gone back to Ravnica so many times. People loved it. They, it's the first time they actually let people to talk about this set, the Boros. They actually gave color combinations a meaning, and it worked. We got Shocklands in that set, um, which you know had basic land types that changed everything. So, yeah, it was a very important set. 
That being said, as, as a brewer, the cards that really jump out to me are a cycle of terrible creatures called the Hunted Creatures. Oh, they are from the same set? I believe so. I believe each color had a hunted creature. So the way that these creatures work is you get a impressive creature that's slightly above rate. However, that creature is being hunted by opposing tokens. So whenever you cast your hunted creature, your, your opponent gets some tokens <laughs> that are hunting your creature. So a hunted dragon is the one that I'll, I'll talk about here. Hunted dragon, hunted troll, hunted lamasu, hunted phantasm, and hunted horror. Exactly. So for three red red, you get a 6-6 six, six flying haste. Great deal. 6-6 six, six flying haste for five. However, your opponent also gets three 2-2 two, two white knight creature tokens with first strike. I mean, that's... And the art shows these three knights chasing the dragon around. That's a much better deal than the Lamasu. I don't know what a Lamasu is. So the Lamasu was interesting because that one can at least defeat the, the token that was hunting it. The, that one is being hunted by a 4-4, four, four, and it's a 5-5. Yeah. Five, five. But the hunted dragon, like, Couldn't. gets killed by the knight. Yeah, but it has haste and it flies. So it's like super pressure. The hunted... The, horror the green is the one worst. is a joke. The green one is absolutely... So the green one is a 4-mana 8-4. An opponent gets 4-1-1 flyers? <laughs> It has regenerate for one green. But... So I don't know. I don't know what the design story is behind these cards. I think what happened is okay. A, they want to tell a cool story, and these cards tell wonderful stories. B, I, I think they understood that these cards are terrible, unless you're trying to do something sneaky, like unless you actually want to give your opponents tokens, and that is what makes them so exciting to brew around. Like if you really just want to generate five goblins on your opposing side. You've never had a card before, like the blue one, the hunted yeah. whatever phantasm. I love the and fact that's that, cool. that, the, that the black one, the hunted horror, is actually being followed by something peaceful. Because all of the, like, the green one is being annoyed by fairies. Actually, the fairies are the good guys in there. Like, in three, in two out of, in three out of five of them, what's hunting them is actually the good thing. Yeah, I think these are supposed to be like monsters, right? Yeah, but that's not the case for the blue and the... No, that's not the case for the white one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe Lamasus are assholes and <laughs> nobody likes them, so... It also has the type like Lamasu. No the idea what of, that is. The body of a bull, a bird's wings, and a human head with horns. Oh, okay, so these are like from like ancient Sumeria, right? Yeah. It okay. even says Mesopotamian creatures of the same name and appearance. Okay, well, that's slightly cooler. But yeah, so on the one hand, it's like, were they trying to balance these cards? Because if so, they flopped horribly. But <laughs> if they were just trying to generate like a, a cool story that actually does something, a unique effect, um, then these were a huge success. It has great flavor text. The, the yeah. knights see a mighty quarry, the dragon sees breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Very nice. All right, so that was my pick for 2005. Mord, take us into 2006. So for 2006, I went for something. We had Guild Pack, Dissension, Cold Snap, and Time Spiral. And I think I went a little bit safe with a card that just was like the evolution of mana drugs in the form of Utopia Sprawl, of what happens when you want acceleration, but you don't want creatures. And I think Utopia Sprawl was one of the first scenarios of this outside of artifacts, right? It was like the first non-artifact way of acceleration in the early turns, besides a manador. And it felt so thematically on green that like it's a perf it's a card that it could have been printed in alpha, but it just wasn't. Well it was it was printed in alpha actually. It was called Wild Growth. 
And yeah, exa- the thing okay, is, yeah, for exactly. some reason, Wild Growth never saw much play. I, I don't know why. Like it, it seems obvious now, like how powerful this card, this effect can be. Maybe it was like too much strip mines, too much land destruction back in the day. People preferred Land War Elves, but Wild Growth to me is just like a better card than Land War Elves. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah, I agree. But the thing is, back in the day, removal was so inefficient in the most scenario that Adork just wasn't bound to die, and it was a creature. So, like people, you know, during Ravnica block, people were excited that Birds of Paradise was in the in the set. But like Utopia Sprawl is, is just a better card, I think. I just think it's like what's bound to happen, and it did. And I really like cards like Utopia Sprawl, and I really think they help make mana better in the cases where creatures are not what you're looking for. Yeah, I love this card. I mean, it's one of those cards that flew under the radar, but they've never printed a card like this again. It's too dangerous. Exactly. And there's a reason for that. And then we go to 2017, a spicy year, especially because it was the first time we got a new cre- a new card type in decade. Yeah, in 2007, we had Planar Chaos, Future Sight, Lorwyn, and 10th Edition. And I had to pick a Lorwyn card because this was the first set to introduce Planeswalkers. Jace Bellerin is my pick of these original five Planeswalkers. Jace Bellerin, the three-mana Jace that just draws cards. I mean, these were very basic effects. I hated them. David hated them. We're old men. We can rant about Planeswalkers destroying the game. <laughs> but it's only fitting to have a Planeswalker here. But it's kind of funny how, in retrospect, the original five were quite fair and balanced. The, the original five were perfectly balanced, and then they, and then stuff happened. Yeah, they should have just stopped with the original five, say, we got it right. Perfect. No need for any more of this card type. But yeah, I'm kind of curious if Jace would actually see any play in Pioneer, for example, if it was legal. It's not, but... You know, it's a one-sided Howling Mine, or an actual Howling Mine, if you do the plus two. Also, we had some really beautiful cards. Ponder was printed in these years? I thought Ponder was a lot older. No, Ponder was from Lorwyn as well. I mean, it's interesting, like, they, there's a few effects where they kind of had, a, like, a blind spot. Like, blue cantrips, I don't think they understood quite how powerful they were for a long time. I mean, they reprinted Ponder a couple times as well in core sets. I love that the other, you only included like Garruk as a, as a honorable mention. Clearly, a, a Hani Chandra and Lily didn't deserve that honor. No. I mean, Garruk is cool. Chandra was an embarrassment. <laughs> All right. That's 2007, our first Planeswalker. Take us on to 2008. By 2008, we had Morning Tide, Shadow Moor, Event Tide, Shadows of Alara. And I went for our beloved Bitter Blossom. For some reason, I always say Bitter Bloom. Don't ask me why. A card so powerful, it was pre-banned, pre-banned in modern. modern. But it was the only tribal card I always felt like it deserved a spot. I always felt like the tribal slot was wasted in Magic. And it wasn't until Bitter Blossom plus Spellstarter Sprite that I actually said, huh, maybe there's a reason behind it. I mean, I think tribal was a disaster. Oh, it Not was. as big a disaster as companions, but the fact that it's actually a card type and not a like a super type is super weird. It's super weird. I feel like they regret this decision. Now I know that the judges will ex- now explain to me why it had to be this way, and the rules manager explained like I actually we, like it, and I feel like the interactions like Goblin Matron plus Starfire are super interesting. Like and it I breaks th- the game if you don't consider tribal a separate card yeah, type. Yeah, that's but that's it's not intuitive at all. Like, I know, but I just love stuff like that, and there's also a lot of weird rulings, like the fact that. You can't name Shrine with Cavern of Souls, even if there's a creature Shrine. 
You can't name shrine or you can? You can't. There's a creature that has a shrine, but it's a creature enchantment and the shrine is part of the enchantment type. So creature is not a so shrine is not a creature type, so you can't cover a soul seed. Interesting. There's a lot of weird rulings behind it and the interactions. At the end of the day, a, few, a, month ago, a month ago, I won a game just by going step through for a counter because it had tribal, and that's all the arguments I need. If I instant can be a wizard, that's all I need. But yeah, Bitter Blossom felt like the first time I actually saw that effect. Also, the art is so freaking gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Rebecca Gay. And not much else I can say before going to 2009. All right, that's an odd year, so it's my pick. In 2009, we had Conflux, Alara Reborn, Zendikar, and Magic 2010. Zendikar, I am told, was very popular. I actually wasn't really playing for these years. I was kind of on a hiatus. But, I mean, the Zendikar expansion, it played such a huge role in shaping what modern turned out to be. Because of the enemy fetch lands, because of the landfall mechanic. So I had to pick a landfall card, and the best one, clearly, is Hedron Crab. (laughs) Wait, what? Hedron Crab... You're putting crab over tracker? No, tracker is not from here. You're about to be right. Go on. I mean, this is the card of the year, card of the decade, perhaps the card of the century. Hedron crab from 2009. So here's what it is. Like they, they were exploring the mill theme at this time. Archive Trap was also printed this year. I think Glimpse the Unthinkable had been printed a couple years before. So what if you can mill your opponent out? But it turns out that they also gave Heatron Crab the ability to target any player. And that's what makes the Heatron Crab so special. I would love, I would love to have a second copy of this. Like, yeah, mill players got their wish. They got ruined crab. If you want to mill the opponent, whatever. Vengevine players are in crumbles. Vengevine players are in shambles, exactly. It turns out that, like, milling yourself is so uniquely powerful and... The fact that Landfall, right, the new mechanic, can just power it up so quickly, right? Like, if you had to put a price, if you had to pay mana to mill yourself, it would it would not be powerful at all. But yeah, Hedron Crab, what, what a card. This has got to be my pick from 2009, no question. Poor Path to Exile. Modern staple for almost a decade. More than a decade. And just being forsaken for a crabby boy. Holding a strange <laughs> device he doesn't compre- comprehend. Uh, scoreboard. I mean, Hedron Crab still sees play. Where is Path to Exile these days? It's out on the streets. <laughs> it's homeless. I have cast much more Path to Exile in the last decade, in the last year that I have cast Hedron Crabs. I'm on zero Hedron Crabs. All right, more. Take us to 2010. So, Warwake, Rise of the Eldrassi, Arc Enemy, M11, and Scars of Mirrorin. And I had to go for what was one of the cards I have hated the most in the last decade, which is Manamorphose. I don't know how re- from. That's not from this set, though. This is definitely said. No. That makes sense because I was just looking at the sign and that didn't make enough sense. Give me a second. Pretty sure that's from Shadow Moor. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just looking at the set and it just was like, wait, what? But Manamorphose was so good that nevertheless it took the, it took <laughs> took the top to... spot in 2010. No, no, I'm going to change my sport in literally a second. Every secret layer comes with a bonus card, so Manamorphose <laughs> is the bonus card. Manamorphose is the bonus <laughs> card. We have to sustained the second 2010. No, but I'm actually going to go for a pretty easy... I'm going to go for a cycle rather than a specific card. And it's going to be... So I think there's two alternatives here. First of all, the cards I love and I think have really helped a lot with the game because they were the first one to have decent power level is the Colonnade... The cycle of Manlands from from Rise of Eldrassi. Oh, the... um, Colonnade, Shambling Bend, 
Racing Rabin. Yeah, from World Wake, yeah. For literally nine years or ten, they were like the staple in your mana base that actually helped you pull through. And I think that was forgotten by the ages because they have evolved into Hall of the Storm Giants and such. But they were such a step up from what lands used to be before this, if I'm not mistaken. Well, we've explored the mainland space on cards like Treetop Village, Mistress Factory. So there were good mainlands in the early days. But it turns out that in in this day and age, you need color fixing too. So now in World Wake, they just started tacking on more and more stuff. Like how much can you get? In yeah. exchange for playing a tapped land. And cards like Colonnade, even if they see a lot less play now, still see play, and they're like emblematic of what represents a mid or control deck, having the capability of even your land drops being a decent draw. If not, it was going to be for the true creature that wins the game on the spot, which was Embracul the Ironstorm, but that seems a lot more a lot more boring. It is more boring. I think that's that's part of why I just didn't like the Eldrazi when they first came out. Like, they were so big. powerful. It's just the answer to all of the what's my payoff. Like, we talked about Polymorph. Yeah, and it's always Embracool. Yeah. Another thing that happened that year was, um, I think the Titan cycle came out for the first time in M11. Like, Primeval Titan, Infernal Titan. And, like, compare that to what we were saying about Phyrexian Negator (laughs) at the top of the show. (laughs) Like, just the philosophy of what a creature, you know, should a creature have a downside? Or should it just be all upside all the time? Right? Things were definitely shifting in 2010. Regarding that... I think it was TV pills that made like the most appropriate tweet I had seen in a year or like in a decade today. So the standard deck list got posted today for the worlds. Have you seen them? I have not. No. So 22 of 30 players are playing Esper midrange. That's 68% of the meta. Four are playing oh, Shan. One Asorius, one Band, one Grixis, one Iset, one Mardu, one Mono Blue. And the, the post goes, counter spells, counter target spell, unless controller plays two, removal, deal two damage to any target, sweepers, destroy all creatures, opponents draw three cards, threats, four four, war three, draw two on ETV. Can someone help me, can someone who's good at card design help me balance this? My metagame is feeling a bit homogenized. <laughs> we can reach the point where threats are just a lot better than what we can answer. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at, look at modern today, right? Like, you can just get a one mana, Source the plowshares that draws a card off Karuga. You have to p- give the threats all these extra stuff. Like when everything can be answered for zero or one mana, you, you have to just keep juicing the threats. Yeah, we have reached. I think we have reached that point, and that's why I at least love modern modern horizons. Like as a concept, I know there are cards that are outliers. They provided the format with so many needed. Well, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I feel like the arms race has really gone out of hand, but. I guess that's a question for later years. We're still in, in the 2010s, so let's proceed. <laughs> so we can keep going to 2015. An odd year. A done year. 2011, rather. 2011. I don't know how to count. <laughs> we have Mirrored and Besieged, New Phyrexia, Magic 2012, and Innistrad. So some banger sets this year. I mean, it was tough to choose between Innistrad and New Phyrexia. Innistrad had the first double face cards um, kind of open Pandora's box there as we'll see in some of the later expansions. But in terms of like cards that really capture the imagination, it's gotta be the Phyrexian mana mechanic from new Phyrexia. And here we see cards like dismember mental misstep and my pick Gataxian pro. Why? Why? Why pick Gataxian pro? <laughs> yeah. Well, also why, pr- also why print it? But yeah, why choose it? Are you familiar with Ken Nagel from the 
R and D. No, he's like Morrow's uh, Mark Rosewater's protege. This was his first lead design, new Phyrexia, and he was tasked with coming up with something that mechanically that felt Phyrexian. And what he came up with was the idea of like transgression, right? Like you should feel violated when these Phyrexian cards are cast against you. Like there's a card called Praetor's Grasp where you actually get just grab your opponent's deck and you get to rifle through it and pick their card out. Uh, like surgical extraction, right? It's like you, you feel like you're being picked apart and like things are getting dismembered, literally. So the Phyrexian mana mechanic you know, it does that, like life is being lost. It's a very visceral experience. And then in Gitaxian Probe, you get to see their hand. So it's like, it really, for me, like captured that that feeling of transgression in a card that turned out to be broken, right? So, <laughs> so like all these Phyrexian mana cards are just utterly broken. And I'm not sure like who, who realized that and when. Like I remember Owen Turtonwald arguing that there's no need to ban Gitexian Probe and Modern because a strong player can just deduce the opponent's hand based on context clues. <laughs> so like, yeah, this card existed for many years in Modern. And then now everyone's like, oh yeah, clearly it's busted. But we didn't know this back then. We didn't know that a free card that draws you a card and it's literally free will, and it gives you free info would be too much. It, like strictly better for years. Brave would be too much. It existed for years in both Legacy and Modern. Ah, the evolution of game design and card and card analysis. We were young in those days. <laughs> I was young. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's 2011. How about 2012? So 2012, Dark Ascension, Abbasin Restored, M13, and Return to Ravnica. I, I made the non-moral decision to pick Cavern of Souls over Ghostly Flicker. <laughs> Ghostly Flicker? Okay. I love Ghostly Flicker. I think Ghostly Flicker is... Everything ephemerate is. It was the original ephemerate. Just wow. Popper All-Star Ghostly Flicker. No, it got replaced by ephemerate. It used to be a popper All-Star, now it's bad ephemerate. As it should. So you were choosing from Dark Ascension, Avacyn Restored, Return to Ravnica, and M13, and you went with Cavern of Souls. So I think Cavern of Souls is a pinnacle difference in allowing tribal decks to exist in control decks formats. When you when you take out the ability of control decks to interact with the stack and force them to interact on sweepers, you are at least uh, uh, making it possible for you to play the game in those matchups. Because if you have to play around both stack interaction and sweepers, you're never winning. However, if you can eliminate one of the variances, that's how you allow tribal decks and creature decks to actually have a holding. Like, can you picture tribal decks existing nowadays without Cavern of Souls? Well... I can, and this is my question for you, because they've they've printed Secluded Courtyard, they've printed Unclaimed Territory, which is, those are both the exact same cards, Cavern of Souls, without that Can't Be Countered Clause. So do you consider the Can't Be Countered Clause an essential part of Cavern, or is that like a design mistake? I think it was at the moment, not with because creatures hadn't reached the power level they'd reached later, right? Like, nowadays it's a mistake. At the time, I think it was a necessity. At least that's what I think. Now that creatures are reaching, like, freaking new huge power levels, maybe making mm. them uncontrolled wasn't that too much. Yeah, so it's a kind of a quirk of the design. That I don't know how important that is. I mean, for a while it was just essential to stitch together a five-color mana base, regardless of whether the opponent had counterspells or not. Yeah, maybe maybe it's a mistake. Maybe the card is just too powerful for what you do, but I think it was, like, the beginning... And then he transformed into the courtiers and such. Maybe it should have been a courtier at its time. 
But I feel like this fixing for tribals was something that wasn't really present in the game. No, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, there me. was some weird... There was a land that tapped for the void. Or was the void not here yet? What year was the void? Uh, that was later. Yeah, Cavern was the first of its kind. Um, yeah. And then lands started appearing that fulfilled that same thing, giving lands... Making lands great at specific things. First of its kind, if we had known it was going to be a $90 card back then, we would have picked up a lot more copies of it when it was cheap. It was cheap? <laughs> I mean, for a while, yeah. It was just a standard card. It was not that special. People just didn't notice. Exactly. So we move on to 2013. My pick now. It's an odd-numbered year. And the pickings were slim in this year. The sets were Gate Crash, Dragon's Maze, Theros, and Magic 14. Not a lot to choose from in these sets, I have to say. Not a lot to choose from in these sets, I have to say. Devotion was kind of cool from Theros, but the card that I ended up picking was Burning Tree Emissary. Burning Tree Emissary, I mean, love it, hate it. The thing that I find so fascinating about this card is that it ranges from being the sign of like an utterly broken deck to being the sign of like a underpowered weak deck. <laughs> like you'll hear people ironically saying Burning Tree Emissary should be banned. Oh no, Embercleave should be banned. It's unclear. What one of those two? Wasn't it temporarily banned in Historic for a while? <laughs> and then they brought it back. Um look at the green deck in Pioneer, right? The Nykthos deck. Yeah. Early versions were like, oh my gosh, I'm so afraid of what will happen if they go Burning Tree Emissary into Nykthos. And now it's realize- like you just don't play it anymore, right? <laughs> They don't even care about the misery. So I can't, I can't quite process this. I mean, it's a, u- a unique effect. It's explosive. It adds power to the board. It adds devotion to the board. You know, if you're looking for bushwhackers, it, it adds, you know, it's a, a, adds to your creature storm count. Like it does unique things, and yet it's an underpowered card. So somewhere between there, it's either too good or too bad. And it's just fascinating to me how it can oscillate between those poles, even within the same archetype, over the lifetime of the deck's development. So that's why Brain Tree Emissary is my pick. Alright. I, I, I thought you were going to go for Young Pyro. I think David would pick that if he was here, but yeah, Young 100%. Pyro is like too straightforward, you know? <laughs> Makes sense. So from there we go to 2014. Born of the Gods, Journey to Nyx, Conspiracy, M15, and Khan. I think I had the obvious choice of going for Fetchlands or Seas Rhino, but I actually went for something that I was not sure about, which was Ugin's Nexus, just because it's a card that has intrigued me since I first saw it. Ugin's Nexus? Interesting pick. It's a card I always feel that can be broken, but I can never picture how, you know? Sort of the Brewer's Slim slash Dream slash Nightmare. So its primary purpose seems to be preventing people from taking turns, but yet it also has this Ability to like keep taking turns yourself. Such a strange card. The interaction with um, what is it, Karn? That you can just keep getting it back from exile. Yeah, and you need a sack outlet. I don't know. It's a card. You know, one of those cards that just intrigues you. We also had aggressive mining at the time, and I almost pick it just because it's aggressive mining. Oh god. <laughs> well, the Ukas Nexus deck has 5 would in Pioneer. Like, David has built a couple of versions of it. We like yeah. it with stuff like Vraska and things of that nature, but it's not quite there. So, yeah, I do think there's, like, potential. Maybe a new card will be printed that makes the Ugin's Nexus deck 
actually contender. We hope so. But yeah, and with that, we go to 2015. Odd number for a weird pick by Dan. Yeah, so in 2015, we had Fate Reforged, Dragons of Tarkir, Magic Origins, and Battle for Zendikar, one of the worst sets of all time. So definitely was not picking anything from that, <laughs> but what I did pick was the card Living Lore. This is a weird one. It's not a good card, it's not a tournament card, but it is a brewer's card, and it's super flavorful. I love the artwork, I love the concept. Living lore, like we're talking about scrolls that come to life, it's the idea of like a spell that becomes a creature. How does that get represented in a card? Well, for three and a blue, you get a star star avatar when living lore comes into play, or rather as it comes into play. Exile from your graveyard, an instant or sorcery card, and then living lore gets power and toughness equal to the CMC of that card. So this is the treasure cruise block. So you're you're basically going to exile the treasure cruise to get an 8-8 living lore. Now what happens? You just have an 8-8 creature, but is that all? No, you also get a chance to cast the spell whenever living lore deals combat damage to anything, creature, player, anything. As long as it deals combat damage and survives, you have the option to sacrifice living lore, like picture the scrolls unraveling, and cast the spell. Super sweet card, super Super sweet art. Flavorful. I mean, I'd like to build kitchen table decks with this card. It's probably never going to be good enough for Constructed. However, it is a sneaky way to cast, you know, emergent ultimatum-style cards that could win the game. It, it was fighting along, alongside an amazing... Like, you had Soul Flayer, Eldrassi Sky Pawner, Bring to Light, Demonic Pack. This was like... And I think David's favorite Mithralized. I mean, Magic Origins had some sweet ones, but I gotta go with my heart. <laughs> my heart says living lore. <laughs> so that's what you're lore? gonna get if you get the Faith is Brewing secret layer. From there we go to 2016. Even number off of the gate was Shadows of Arrhenius for Eldritch Moon, Kaladesh. And I went for the card that I think was my first brew ever, like actual brewing around the card. Because I had brewed with tokens, I had played some bad Keith Kings deck when I started playing. But my first brew was with Dubious Challenge. Oh god, what? <laughs> really? What can I say? Why? Why? I just like making bad cho- I like making bad choices back in the day. So, Dubious Challenge, 4 mana sorcery, look at the top 10 cards of your library, exile up to 2 cards from among them, shuffle your library, and then the opponent choose which of them to put under his or her control. So the idea was, you hit, try to hit like an Embracool, or like an Ulamog, and a Flicker Wisp or any other similar bounce effect, and your opponent is forced to keep the creature that they, that flickers in order not to give you the, the the titan. You always end up with a titan. I mean, the card is absolutely hilarious. The fact that it looks at your top 10, I mean, there's not many cards that look at your top 10. It's and so yet, deep. You, you really have to hit a specific combination of creatures. That's the problem. You don't work. have to hit one creature. You have to hit a payoff and a blinker. It got better with Charming Prince, so yeah. I mean, we, we have tried this recently. It's, it's not good, but it is no. funny. The card art is hilarious. It shows this giant Gear Hulk, and then someone who it looks like Sahili, but someone who looks very small, kind of side-eyeing this Gear Hulk. A person with a sword against a huge Gear Hulk just lumbering over it. It's a dubious challenge. Exactly. Also, the, the other alternative was Harmless Suffering, which is a card just for brewing. A card that does nothing, but does everything. This is because you're trying to give your kittens away. I see the theme now. 
I see a it's theme. Like, hey, Marty's giving the Guinness. Hey, Look, have a, have a demon. Kitten. <laughs> I promise it's not a demon. I promise it won't hit all over the floor. It would never do that. No, don't look at it. Don't smell it. Have the kitten. So done. 2017. Yeah, we're approaching the modern era. So in 2017, we had Ether Revolt, Amonkhet, Hour of Devastation, and Ixalan. This is kind of the last death throes of Standard. Like, Kaladash block was the last time anyone cared about Standard, and Amonkhet block kind of sealed the deal. So it is a significant period of Magic's history, in, in my opinion, for that reason alone. But the card that I'm picking to represent this year is Walking Ballista, a card that is unjustly, unfairly imprisoned in Pioneer. Should not be banned at all. Like, okay, yes, it's it comes Heliod, but who cares? That deck is totally fine. That deck is I mean, healthy. Of course, you can unban Walking Ballista the exact same moment you ban Karn or Nixos. No, they actually think that Heliod is the problem. Like, that's the reason why it's banned. It's because it combos with Heliod. Yeah, 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 they... but I don't <laughs> think that's the problem today. It was the problem. It doesn't combo with Karn. I mean, it's just like a fine card. That's the thing about Walking Ballista. Like, at every point, it's fair, it's interesting, it's good, it's powerful. Yes, it's an infinite amount of payoff, but that, that's fine. I mean, I don't think that's a problem. It synergizes with Hardened Scales, with Winding Constrictor, Arcbound Ravager. It's just a great card. It's, it's such a sweet card. It looks beautiful, popular, desirable. I don't know why they don't just let people play with this card more. That's my rant. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> card. Pick. Also, this was the year I started playing, so some of these cards I just love. Like, started playing exactly the same year that Suddenly Breakage came out that stuffed your brain regarding attack steps. That's just true. So, you just get hard-coded into playing around it. <laughs> and, well, who doesn't... And Legion's Landing is such a perfect design. Oh, so you're, you're like, oh, Ixalan, this is where all the bangers came from. <laughs> This is peak magic right here. Vampires fighting merfolk riding dinosaurs. Perfect. Peak fantasy. Take us into 2018. So for 2018, I picked the only card that's memorable from this time and that people don't hate collectively. There's two memorable cards from this time, now that I said that. So Rivals of Dixaland, Dominaria, M19, Gilles of Rannica. And I'm sorry to say for this time I went for the exact same pick Wizards did, which was Arclight Phoenix. A card practically everyone severely underestimated and ended up being a banger in multiple formats. On release was was worth like five bucks. The and new it, artwork for this in the Wizard's yeah. Secret Lair is sweet. I love it. <laughs> but the old artwork is sweet too. And yeah, a card that some <laughs> Some storms never blow over, and that's exactly what the Phoenix is, right? It just keeps coming back in Modern, in Pioneer, you just can't kill it. It just never blows over. I think the only other honorable mention from here is the Ferihiro Dominaria. God. No, nobody yeah, likes that. Nobody likes that. And the other, and the other alternative is a card I personally love, but isn't on a, on a decent power level, which is Shalai. I love Shalai. Hmm. Okay, I mean, that's an interesting pick. My story about Arclight Phoenix, so we were not doing the podcast yet at that time, but if we had been, I would have been urging people to get this card. It was, it was like you were saying, underestimated at first. It was cheap. Damon and I went to Grand Prix Denver. I think that was like a team-limited Grand Prix. Guilds of Ravnica had just come out, and Channel Fireball at the time 
ran the prize wall, so they actually stocked a bunch of singles from the current set, and you could get them for like a couple prize tickets. And they tracked pretty closely to what their prices were on the CFB website. And Arclight Phoenix, you could get them for the price of one booster pack. So we got there on Friday, and I was like browsing the prize wall. <laughs> I saw they had Phoenixes for like the equivalent of one booster pack each, and I was like, all right, I need to join side events immediately <laughs> and clean them out of Arclight Phoenixes, which I did. I think, I mean, I, I got a foil one. I got like two play sets with the regular ones. And then, yeah, like two weeks later, people were like, oh my god, this card is amazing. That's my story. I just want <laughs> to get it out there. <laughs> I love that. Beautiful card. Beautiful card. Beautiful, Beautiful card, choice. and that's what it was choice, and I can't really see why Wizards speak it. So, what can I say besides great choice for them and for us? Which leads us to 2019, the best year in Magic. The best year in Magic's history, because this is the year that Faithless Brewing began. This is the beginning of the Faithless Brewing era. We started right when War of the Spark was coming out, and went straight into Modern Horizons, then straight into M20, then straight into Throne of Eldraine. I mean, M20 was the only time you could catch a breather. We couldn't, though. I mean, M20 had so many good cards. What did it have? It had Field of the Dead, it had Lotus Field, it had Brought Back, it had Elvish Reclaimer. It had all kinds of stuff. I can't believe even the corset was insane. Yeah, Aether Gust. Like, wow, you yeah, had it's Bale. It's a banger of a set. Yeah, and you had Spirit like, and Bale. No, no, but hand, it, it came out like two weeks after Modern Horizons, six weeks, whatever. It was a it, intense yeah, sequence yeah. of releases. All bangers. And this was, I think, the most broken year of Magic ever. Yeah. Fire Besides design. 93. I mean, this was. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> you can't just pick a card here. Like I have to give Hogak my pick just because you know we love Hogak. But, I mean, this is the year of Oko with the year of Teferi, Time Reveler, Karn, all this stuff, Ren and Six. I mean, what, what a bunch of absolute monstrosities came out of this year. But I'm picking Hogak, out of respect for the king. The king who, sur- who survived a banning, he just shrugged it off and continued to dominate. <laughs> if you're going to come for the king, you best not miss. And they missed when they banned Bridge from Below. The other thing I want to say about Hogak is... We never really knew whose fault Hogak was. We just assumed that it was like, okay, maybe they tried to sneak in a commander design and didn't test it enough, right? It was maybe a lesson in why you shouldn't mix commander and modern in the same supplemental products. But three weeks ago, Jerry Thompson had a very interesting article on uh, Hipsters of the Coast where he went, like revealed the secret that he actually worked on Modern Horizons 1. He was like their outside tester. <laughs> and he didn't take the blame per se, but he said that, yeah, they, they looked at Hogak, and he said they they didn't tell him that Stitcher Supplier existed. Okay. That card was locked in and was going to be printed. Like, it came out, I think in m20 so yeah so like as he was testing hogak he was unaware of the fact that there was this beautiful enabler that just was just waiting around the, the corner so smooth but i think also you know he could have tweaked hogak i mean i, I think he he would agree that <laughs> this was a miss on the people yeah, yeah. who signed on off on hogak. Side, even without the supplier hogak is insane they may have been right that like a graveyard deck needs some kind of payoff like this but it shouldn't have been 8-8 that shouldn't have had trample it's just too big. It's too big. Like a 4-4 four, four trample would have been totally fine. Another Vengevine. 
Another bench fight. Yeah, yeah. They, they trample, they delve, they convoke, the avatar, the everything. Just something had to be removed. We miss you, Hogak. We don't. They do. <laughs> All right, 2020. So, Thedos Beyond Death, Ikoria, M21, Syndicate Rising, and my sweet answer of I won't be dignifying this question with an answer. Is this the only... year? Is this the year that made you choose evens? There's only one answer to that. Oh, one answer Ikoria. in our hearts. Oh, don't tell me you're picking a companion. Please don't pick a companion. <laughs> of course the answer is my boy. <laughs> my dead boy. But let me specify why. I don't care about the companion mechanic. The companion mechanic was indeed a huge mistake. But what I wanted to talk about is how the companion mechanic proves that Wizards is not scared while in developing to go over the line. Go over the line of what's common and go over the line of everything is kicker, everything is... So... We all know the meme. Everything is horsemanship, everything is kicker, and everything is just a third one. Every single mechanic is one of three. Just purse around a bit. Flying is horsemanship, reach is inverse horsemanship, prototype is kicker, kicker is kicker, all flashback is kicker from the graveyard, etc. etc. In order <laughs> to innovate yeah. in order to innovate, you require the game. You need to pull the limits of the game. And I think that's what they were going for companion. Sometimes, in the process of innovating, you go too far. But I would rather than go too far from time to time than stick to what they know is cool. Because the game is 30 years old. How long can you keep doing Kicker before Kicker is too much Kicker? Well, that all sounds fine in theory, as long as you acknowledge when something has gone wrong and that, fix that's, it. That's, a, that's another problem for Wizards to respond. I do think that they need to pull over the line is a necessity. And I think it, I would rather see more companion line mechanics than zero of them. I think that's fair. And going back to Jerry Thompson's article, he did say that internally when they were testing MH1, they, they kind of joked that if we only have to ban three cards from this set, we'll call it a success. And I think that's what they're currently at right now. Three cards banned from MH1, although Ren and Six is not long for this world. When people complain about Horizon 6, I think they don't realize that 90% of the cards here are fantastic cards. On Thin Ice, Keeper of Runes, Captain Nature of Eos, Ursa, Yogmoth, Season Pyromancer, Force of Negation. People like to complain about the bad ones and forget about Crushing Footfalls and Collecting and Collector Roof. And Goblin Matron and the myriad of cards that just make the game a lot better. Hmm. And I think that's that desire to keep pushing forward on the limits of what can be created. That's what part of my, what made Magic great at this moment and something that shouldn't be lost. Even if they make mistakes, maybe we can talk about how they should be faster at fixing them. Fair enough. True. But I don't think Companion was a mistake. I think Companion was a calculated bet that went wrong. And they should keep going for it. So, I have to ask you more. Is, is Yorian the answer to the challenge you posed last episode? Yeah, to of whoever course. could guess? Also, okay. it, was, it was half Yorian and half taking the possibility out of you to pick Faithless Looting. <laughs> It was both. It was taking control of Amazon Restored. Oh, you didn't want to give me Faithless Looting? Come on. <laughs> taking Ikoria for myself. You gave us Cavern of Souls instead of Faithless Looting? Come on. I was hoping you would call me on that. So, yeah. I assume uh, you did your research in good faith. When you said there was nothing else of interest that year, I just took your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I did 
in good faith. I'm just an asshole. So, 2021. Yeah, only two years left to go. And it turns out that both of the Horizon sets fell in the odd years, so... I get to pick another Horizons card. Yeah. 2021 had Kaldheim, Strixhaven, MH2, Dungeons and Dragons, Midnight Hunt, and Crimson Vow. Oh my god, that's so many sets. I can't believe we covered all these sets more. This was insane. Yeah. That's a lot for that year. Too many sets. And to be honest, like I almost picked one of the random MDFCs from Strixhaven because they upset me so much. Like I, I was surprised <laughs> by this pick. Well, I didn't pick them, but like, you know, all those random like deans of the colleges and stuff from like cars that have too much text, they don't do anything. Like, they should not have allowed themselves to use the backside of the card like this. So, that's an example of like opening Pandora's box in a bad way. <laughs> um, that's my honorable mention. But the card that I did pick, I wanted to pick an MH2 card that makes me happy, that makes me feel like, okay, even though they're trying to jack up the power level of a format, and create incentives to buy new cars, they can do so in a way that's flavorful, that's interesting, that's powerful, but not, not too powerful. And for me, the card that that perfectly captures all that is Asmo. Asmo and America Dyson Akula car and the Underworld Cookbook. Paired cards. Beautiful cards, right? I think at this point, we all agree Asmo's fair and fun and not that strong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if, I don't think you could complain about Asmo's power level nowadays. Yeah, it was good, maybe very, very good for the first month. But then we figured out how to fight it. You know, for starters, kill the Asmo. That's a good start. Um, and then what you end up with is like a unique set of cards, right? Underworld Cookbook is a really, really interesting discard outlet in a way that we haven't seen before. It's cheap, it's fast, it comes off of a Slago. Asmo, a zero mana cost legend? I mean, how often does that come up? <laughs> like, we're trying to cascade Ragavan into Asmo in the Jota decks. Like, it's just a very cool card. Very flavorful. And takes a kind of cute story from the earliest days of Magic and brings it to life in, uh, in a way that's interesting for brewing. Asmo has been a cool card, and I think it was one of the best designs from I made in, like, a fair card that's also fairly interesting. Even that last ability of, like, sacrifice two foods, target creature deals six damage to itself. So it's like the creature eats the food and then, like, their their stomach starts growing. I mean, that's what Asmo does in the lore as well. That's how, that's how she escapes. Oh, she makes a... Yeah. Like a deadly meal. <laughs> so it's always, like, perfectly fitting. Like, everything about the card is perfectly fitting. Yeah, beautiful stuff. She's even in the artwork, she's putting a scarab in the food. Perfect card. All right, and that's 29 years of magic, so I guess that for Magic's 29th, we're, we're finished. Oh, no, we're not. Sorry. Magic no, 30. we have a, la a last year, and an year where of course, I'm, still the 30th year. I'm still decisive around my choice, because I feel... So, the design for the past year has been amazing. If I if I had taken an MH2, I would have for sure picked Solitude, not only due to power level, but because I think it's great at allowing us to play from being on the draw. No, oh, I hate that card. I love that card. I can't believe you would pick that card. That's offensive to me. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you beat Hammer while being on the draw? I think it's the first time you actually don't lose while being on the draw in modern. It has never been less devastating than now. All right. But no, going to, to what I would have picked for 2022, <laughs> Wizards picked like the worst card they could pick. I think. Do you know what they picked? They picked the Rat Ninja, right? Yeah, they picked Nashi. Nashi Moonsage Sign. For Sion. some reason. 
Which makes no little to no sense, because it has neither seen playing nor being a particularly interesting design. Well, what were the choices? So they had Neon Dynasty? They had Wandering Emperor. They had Reality Cheap. They had a lot. Like, power level cards, they had Wandering Emperor to start with. Which is a lot more interesting and a lot better as a card. Also, I love that I predicted on that one. I was super close on our wide march. I want, like, an internal debate between, like, Lele Binding, Wandering Emperor, or mostly, maybe the peak is just the most simple and it's Ledger Shredder. Dance well, you can only pick one. Shredder I mean, this is it. You're, you're on the spot here, Mord. you got to finish the secret layer. It's due today. <laughs> <laughs> is it today? you got to give it in. No, I think, as a design, I would just pick the Wandering Emperor. Okay. Because not only it's a perfectly drafted design that works efficiently, it's a card that sees play, it's not busted in any format, but a great addition to a lot of them. But if I was, uh, but if it was based on poorly power level, I would have picked Legend Shredder. I would have never picked Nashi. We'll never know why they picked Nashi. I mean, it, it makes no know. sense. I think probably they were just crunching the numbers. They didn't want to put too much value in the thing. So <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, just Nashi will do. Nashi, get in here. <laughs> Get out of the bulk bin and get into the secret there. Ah, poor Nashi. But yeah, that's all for us today. The 30 years of magic. A card for each. The secret, the faceless ruling secret layer that doesn't include faceless looting. So, yeah, I mean, 30 years, 30 cards, a mix of powerful cards, really bad cards, and really interesting cards. But, I mean, for me, that's what brewing is. Like, it's not all about picking the bangers. It's about picking cards that speak to you cards that take your mind interesting directions and i think that's what has made magic such a great game for all these years exactly what makes magic evolve is us and showing the game so obviously mord and i did this exercise just the two of us i'd be curious to ask david if he'd have any radically different picks and you know if you're listening you want to make your own list we'd love to see it you can get at us we are on twitter at faithless mtg what is your magic 30 secret layer what are the cards that have like kept you engaged with the game? What would represent you as a player? Yeah, let in us Magic? know. And if anyone wants to print a fake proxy version of our secret layer, well, we shouldn't say, but also get at me on Twitter. I'm interested. <laughs> I'm interested in the faceless ring secret layer. Exactly. <laughs> All right, that's the end to it for us for today. We'll be back next time with Brothers War spoilers. And yeah, by the time we come back to you next Friday, we should be, this Friday actually, we should be having most of them ready and looking forward to just having some beautiful spoilers and hopefully something nice to roll with. Exactly. Yeah, thanks so much everybody, thanks so much Dan, and have a nice night. Bye-bye! If you enjoyed this episode and want to know more about our latest brews, you can support us via Patreon, which will not only grant you immediate access to our Discord, where you can find our faithless brewers alongside an army of mind-like players, but also access to the monthly project voting, where you can help us decide what to play with for the following month. Finally, remember to tune in on Monday as David returns from his climbing trip, and we can go look deep into one of the finest brews in Pioneer. Hope you enjoyed the episode, and have a nice night. Happy brewing!